This is Gross Anatomy, where pop culture meets health culture. Let's get to it. Hello. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to Gross Anatomy, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Jason, do you want to say who we have on today? I think you're so excited. It's the most excited I've seen him in a while. Well, I'm, I'm pathetically, for so many ridiculous reasons, I'm excited to have Mark Goffman on because he's someone that I do not know, but I feel like I do know him because Mark and I had one of those serendipity kind of meets just recently. And I, I love serendipity. And it was just kind of, you know, one of those ridiculous things that, you know, I'm I'm making it all about me. But you know, when you meet someone and you 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 say to them, you could be in Europe and you meet an American and you're like, oh, do you know so and so? And and of course they don't know so and so. So I met Mark. I, why were you even at that event, Mark? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Uh, I I met uh, Shlomo, uh, his mutual friend, through. Uh, some other friends uh, in the media business, and they invited me to come to this dinner. And uh, so these are these will be very interesting people. Out of your, you know, if you like meeting people, not in entertainment, and a lot of doctors. And you know, I, I am uh, at a point I threw my back out, so I was like, you know what, this is the perfect opportunity to talk to some great doctors and get out into the world again. So uh, so I took the invitation to go to come to the dinner, and it was really fun. An opportunist there yeah. with the back. Wait, so it was, it was, it was our builder. By the way, I, I, wait, I have to say, I got some, in, in, some fantastic back advice. Oh, we're yeah. gonna have there, were, there were a bunch of back guys there. That's, prob <laughs> that's probably why you went, right? We're going to have to circle back to that. <laughs> the people need the back advice that helped you. Exactly. But so the the thing is, it was all doctors and we were there for our biller. Our biller was taking us all out and like, you know, he's kind of a bit of an over the top guy who likes to kind of have a good time and, and not party so much, but just likes to eat. You know, he loves to get together and loves to eat. So he, you know, gathered us and he does it often. He gathered us all together and you were the only non-doctor there, I I think, pretty much, right? You and your yeah. wife. My, myself and Lindsay, my wife, um, we came and just, you know, it's always, it's great to meet good people. And Reza seems like a really good, you know, genuine human being. And, you know, he was out from New York. And so it just felt like a, a, a great opportunity to meet some good people in Los Angeles. Yeah. And have good food. And, but that's not where the story stops. So so here's where the pathetic part of the story comes. We we got to talking and and I said to you, where are you from? And and you said Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. You, okay, Houston, Texas. It's a bit of a decent sized place. So I named fourth largest, fourth largest city. Yeah. yeah. So I named the only person I know from Houston, Texas, who's my brother in law. And it turns out you guys grew up together, right? That's right. That's right. He's uh, a couple years older than me, but he was in my brother's uh, class and went to the same high school as I did. And he was the studly, good-looking, actorly guy that we all looked up to. Right, Damon. I love it. Damon Shelley. Yeah, and it's just so pathetically written. The one I'm like, oh yeah, do you know? Yeah, we went to the same high school. All um, right, I'm gonna insert myself here to give Mark's real 
introduction. <laughs> Ready? Okay. So today we have on Mark Goffman. Mark Goffman is currently an executive producer and writer for the upcoming NBC series, The Irrational. Prior to this, he was an executive producer and writer on the Netflix series, The Umbrella Academy. Goffman has also executive produced and showrun the hit series Bull on CBS and Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Additionally, he served as an executive producer and writer for Limitless on CBS and USA's White Collar. Goffman first started the NBC's The West Wing, where he wrote for several seasons. Wow, what a bio. Thank you for coming on. You're, you've been a dream for us, so we can't wait to hear more about one, your back advice, and two, your amazing bio. There you go, the back device. Exactly. Yes, uh, a long resume and back issues uh, it means basically that I'm old. Those go hand in hand, I feel. Lots of sitting and <laughs> that ergonomic chair I see you have now. Wait, yeah. when you write, do you write sitting, standing, laying down? How do you do it? Uh, I, I usually write sitting there. Uh, there are some writers who I know who who lay down when they write. It's also easier these days to, you know, to dictate writing um, and uh, to do like standing desk. We, we have a writer's room. And even when we do the virtual writer's room, I'll often stand up. I have a, um, a treadmill below me here so and a standing desk. So I can use that. But just for actually, like if I need to focus and write, I'm always sitting. I have so many things I want to talk about, but I, I just want to shoot the shit a little bit. Do you do you listen to music when you write? Sometimes I, like, I'll have warm-up music if I want to get in a certain headspace. But usually when I write, I'm, I'm not typically one, you know, that's writing in cafes or writing with lots of people around. I don't mind it as much, but usually I just like to just close my door and have kind of uh, a quiet time to myself. Like what amazes me is, if I'm writing anything, it has to be silent. But yet my kids, if they're doing homework and writing a paper, they have music going. And I, I is that a generational thing or? No, you know, it depends. There's certain music that puts me back in a mood or takes me like if I'm writing a period piece or something where I really want to get into a certain time period, like mid 90s. I, I love listening to music and there's there's times where I feel like it it really you know brings me to a certain moment. But for me at least, I get too caught up in that and then I'm listening to the music and I'm not able to concentrate on my writing. So I was gonna say sometimes the lyrics. I remember even in school when I did music, I needed something lyricless. It's gotta just be a music simply for me. I used to I actually when I was in high school, uh back with, with Damon, we uh, I played in a band. And so I, I played drums in a band and for a while I thought that's what I was going to do with my life. But I loved writing lyrics and, and playing music. And then it was only sort of in college that I decided that I, I, write, I liked writing a longer form. Dr. Cohen <laughs> wants to know where you went to college. And then we're going to go in order of the questions that I have for you. All right. Uh, I went to Emory and Harvard. Nice. I went to I three years of both. So it took me a while. <laughs> Why three years of both? I started at Emory, transferred to Harvard, transferred back to Emory because I wanted to graduate in four years, then went abroad for a couple of years um, and wrote for a magazine uh, maybe you've heard of, Commerce in Belgium, very popular, and then uh, went to grad school for, uh, actually went to the Kennedy School of Government and thought I was going to go into speech writing and public policy. Wow, so always a writer. Was that What was your major undergrad? 
Uh, economics and philosophy. Okay. Yeah. I didn't expect the economics twist there, but I love that. I never, I never really thought writing could be a career. Like growing up in Houston, didn't know anybody who did it professionally. It didn't seem like something that was achievable. And parents who really encouraged me to go into the professions. And so, you know, I found my way into thinking, well, maybe I'll speech write because I love writing. Um, and that also feels important. But then I, I got kind of disillusioned with uh, Washington fairly quickly. And when I had an opportunity to work for the fictional government, I thought that was a lot more exciting and, and personally uh, gratifying. I love that. Okay, so I want to know how you two know of each other. We kind of alluded that you guys were in a circle together at some dinner recently, but I know Dr. Cohn had already heard of you, and this is why he's so excited. So I want a little background. I hate to say they're really, other than that, they're they're really, other than the fact that he knows my brother-in-law, there really isn't a background and the fact that I don't know why it came up, but I, I know you were going to ask the question, but I'm a, a bit of a fan of, of Dan Ariely. And Mark, why did it come why did it come up? So I've known Dan for a really long time. I've been a, a fan of his work since I read Predictably Irrational, you know, maybe 10 plus years ago. And it's a, he's a behavioral economist. And I really thought that was a fascinating area to explore. And then I was lucky enough several years ago to get to meet him at, at TED. And I'd done a, a little TED speech and he was really helpful uh, with, with me with getting through that. And so we developed a friendship. And then when I was on Limitless, which was uh, you know based on the movie, I consult or I had one of his very close friends as a consultant who was a neuroscientist. And he was incredibly helpful. And I loved, I, I just really love talking with educators and professors and people who know a lot more than me in any field, which isn't hard to do. But he was just enormously helpful in like giving me information that I could use and wind into stories. And then his friend and Dan take this uh, one month long trek every year where they decide you know, to walk the, the Spanish trail or to walk, you know, from bottom of Mexico to the Panama Canal. It's really fascinating. And in one of these trips, they stopped through LA. So I got to sit with Dan and he told me that there was the potential of, of some people interested in doing a show uh, about his life. And, and what did I think of that? And the more I thought about it, like, this is a really fascinating idea. And he has such an incredible both point of view through his behavioral economics and his uh, that field, which is a little bit like, you know, if anybody else has read Freakonomics, it's really basically taking the idea of traditional economics, which is that everybody makes rational decisions. We think about our choices very clearly and make, you know, educated decisions based on pros and cons and really doing what's best for us. And Dan's research it's basically said it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> People are incredibly irrational. They make decisions based on emotion. They're they're not always and usually not even in your best interest, but they're also fairly predictable. Um, and he gives lots of great examples of that. And all of this research was born out of the fact that when he was in his early 20s, he was in an accident and a fire burned over 70% of his body. And from that, he spent three years in the hospital recovering. And uh, there's this incredible story he tells about 
the um, nurses taking the bandages off very slowly. And he, it was the most excruciating thing in, in his life. And they, they did it, I think, once a day or every other day. And he just, the whole time, kept thinking there's got to be a better way. Ripping it off fast would actually incur less pain. And so when he got out, that was one of the first things that he studied. And, and it turns out, yes, it does inflict a lot less pain on the uh, patient if you rip the, the bandages off quickly. The problem is the pain for the nurses goes way up. And he had never really thought about their pain that they were inflicting. That was just one example, and he's got a million that are really fascinating. So talking to him about that, I teamed up with uh, another friend of mine, Sam Baum, who created a show called Lie to Me. And then we brought in uh, this wonderful, really fantastic writer who I've known for a long time, who worked on Timeless and another uh, and some other great shows, uh, La Brea. And uh, she came in and she actually created the show predictably, or we're calling it The Irrational. And, you know, we sold it to NBC and it's really been a fantastic process ever since. That's amazing. But how did it come up? Why in our meeting did it come up? Because I remember it was also one of those serendipitous things that I think I brought him up and you were like, that's so, fu-, right? I, I ran yeah, brought him it up. It was like you, you brought up Dan, maybe you had met him somewhere or you were talking about the, the, the upcoming show. So that's it. So we've been doing this podcast now for, I, cl- I think, close to five years. And during COVID, I kind of discovered Dan's TED Talks and I read a couple of his books and I just thought he was amazing. And I randomly reached out to him and to try to get him as a guest. So maybe I was telling you about the podcast. And what I find amazing is he actually, you know, a lot of people I've reached out to and they ignore me. But I just thought it was, even though he was blowing me off, I thought it was so cool that he actually took the time. I asked That's him to do the cool. podcast, but it was so cool that he answered my question because I had asked him a question about something he wrote in his book. Oh. Took the time to even address that answer and give a voice recording, which clearly wasn't just a, a because he addressed my question even to prove that that it wasn't just a, a blanket recording kind of thing so i just thought that was so cool and classy that he blew me off with such charm and grace he is a, a really joyous human being one of the things we've loved about working with him is that you know he is so open he's willing to answer all of our questions and share knowledge and genuinely curious about life and I, I think that shows, and that's really part of the spirit we wanted to capture in, in this series. Yeah. He, he I was, love that. He's just so motivational. And the other story that's amazing that he tells about the irrational is, is the, the surgeon who was trying to convince him to tattoo half of his face, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that's an amazing, he's a great storyteller, which, which is fantastic. But I just thought it was so random that, A, I meet some guy who grew up with the one person I know. And then I randomly start talking about Dan Ariely and you're making a show with him. And I just got so ridiculously excited. Yeah. I feel well, it. Well, that's great. I, I was, uh, I was th- thrilled that, you know, that you, you knew about him and, you know, really excited for the show. We're actually launching September 25th, uh, 10 PM on uh, Monday evening. So. Wow. Very soon. We'll have this air just before that, so we can put that in the notes for everyone to go watch. I have a question for you about behavioral economics. Had you heard about it before meeting Dan because you were an econ major? Was that already something you were interested in? 
Yeah, I studied him a little bit over the years just because I try to keep up. But there was one story that really stuck with me, and that was uh, in his book about a, a pen, and that a pen that you might buy that costs, you know, two dollars, right? Now, if that pen is available down the street for one dollar, you'll probably take the time to go and walk and, you know, uh, even spend 10, 20, 30 minutes to buy that pen because it's like 50% less, but it's $1. And yet when you negotiate for a car or a house, the idea of spending any extra time for a dollar is absurd. And this idea of relativity in economics really kind of struck me and just started getting me thinking about how we view money. Another one that kind of stuck with me was that people, once you give someone something, it's significantly more painful to take it away than if they never had it. So that's why, you know, if you forget to buy a stock, let's say, and that stock goes up 110-fold the next day, you're like, yeah, well, I missed it. But if you actually did buy that stock, and then somebody said, I'm going to take away 90% of it for taxes, you'd go ballistic. And it, but it's the exact same amount of money that you did or didn't have. And so just studying these kinds of things, it's, it's really fun to kind of think about how, what emotional effect these different problems have on you and then you know, convert them into stories. I love that. Thank you. I'm also a social science nerd. So my follow-up was going to be, why the irrational will be so attractive to all the social science-y nerdy people <laughs> who love that brain game stuff. Yeah, well, all then there's just all, all the irrational behavior that the, the people constantly do, some in their self-interest, some not. Revenge was a really interesting one that we talk about a lot on the show. What is the good of, a, of revenge? It seems it's actually not in your self-interest. If somebody harms you, Almost always, if you take revenge, if you try to seek justice, it's my, it's time, it's effort, and usually a penalty that you'll never get back. But there is a societal benefit for seeking revenge and justice against somebody who wronged you. But it's not really in your self-interest at all. Now you're getting philosophy brain <laughs> with it too, with the societal interest. That's interesting. I have never thought of it that way. I'm excited to watch the show. It looks so cheeky. And the title completely clicked for me just now when you said irrational again. So I'm even more excited. We try to have fun. You know, it's, uh, I think anytime you challenge sort of the conventional wisdom or you have a character that can be non-obvious in his thinking and, and sort of tell you something you don't know, I mean, that excites me and is something I like watching. So, so, so what is the setup of the show? Is he in it? No. So Erica really did this incredible job with the show um, and creating a character. It's all loosely inspired by Dan's life and material, but more on the, the field of behavioral economics. And there's a professor, uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but um, at least that, that much is in the, the promos. And uh, there was an explosion. He was burned on 70% of his body. And you know, he teaches at a university on the East Coast and he's called in by what's great about the show is it's it's not just law enforcement, but there's obviously a, a lot of need in the law enforcement area. But 
anything any government organization uh, around the world can need his help anytime there's a conundrum about strange inexplicable human behavior why is someone doing what they're doing why did something happen and we can't really explain the human error part of it he gets called in and i think that's that's a really fun premise and is it is it comedic or or because he's funny yeah uh and jesse martin is also phenomenal in it and he's very funny and very witty and sharp and the character definitely has those traits and like i said a real curiosity about human behavior you know we try to to create a tone that is that can walk the balance that at times has a lot of heart at times is really funny um at times you know really get is a mystery that we're we're solving over the course of an hour and has real stakes and meat to it so i i hope i, I think we're successful in all of that yeah, thank you for spelling a little bit. I know you have to keep it keep it a little mysterious for us, of course, but we appreciate the teaser. I want a little bit of your background too, especially with your amazing bio. I'm sure there's people listening wondering how you got there and where you're from and if when you were a kid you had these interests at all that sort of hinted at writing or entertainment. Yeah, I always liked writing, always liked you know, I would write poems when I was little, and I had a, a grandmother who, I don't know why, loved reading my little short stories and poems. Even I can remember when I was eight, I wrote one that she just gushed over. And that was the first time I was like, oh, people enjoy this. I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, I tend to daydream a lot, and I started writing down a lot of the daydreams, and it got better over time, and other people seemed to enjoy them. But again, in Houston, it just never really seemed like... Um, a career. So I tried to find ways to write that were, you know, a little bit more kind of in the mainstream. Um, and then finally, in grad school, I wrote a book just as just for fun, that was uh, about about car etiquette, actually. <laughs> didn't get published, but it was the first kind, first time that I actually wrote like a, a full book. And I really, I just liked the process and I kept writing music, kept writing lyrics to music. Um, and always What's keep going that. on with that book. Well, I got to cut you off. What, tell, where is that book now? That book is somewhere on a hard drive that I'd have to dig up uh, along with a lot of other, you know, shelved projects. But it's kind of, a lot of these things to me, they turn out to be exercises in a journey. And you know, every year I try to do at least one creative project that is sort of outside my wheelhouse that kind of scares me that I I don't know whether it'll turn out well or not, but it's something that excites me and intrigues me. And I want to follow that kind of interest and, and passion. And, you know, over the years, it's been, I did a documentary about ventriloquism with Lindsay. That was really a blast. And, uh, and that's your mother-in-law, right? <laughs> is again inspired by my mother-in-law uh the first time i met her and Lindsay warned me she said she's very shy and she's uh you know don't don't expect to, to have long conversations with her and we went out to indianapolis where i was meeting her family for the first time and yeah the the, the whole first day i was there she barely said a word but uh at the same time you could just tell like she would have kind of a grin or she seemed like there was a lot going on in her head that she just wasn't sharing. And I thought that she seemed like an amazing person. I just wanted to, wanted to get to know her more. And she just hadn't, didn't engage in the conversation. 
So then Lindsay said, mom, why don't you go get some of your puppets out? And this was a fairly new hobby for her at that point. On the point. first day you met her? The first day you met her? This was the first day I met Lindsay's mom. This was, okay. Lindsay and I had been dating uh, over a year at that point. And uh, we went out to Indianapolis to, you know, to hang out with her whole family for July 4th one year. And uh, so her mom goes and gets a puppet named Fire Dog. And it was uh, like a Dalmatian fireman. And all of a sudden lights up into this kind of semi-raunchy, very flirtatious routine with me and asking Lindsay and I about our sex life and just totally hilarious. And I thought, this is just amazing that her alter ego can come out. And meanwhile, you know, Lindsay's mom is admonishing the puppet the whole time, like, stop, stop saying so much, you're embarrassing me. And having this conversation, I thought that's so fun. And in a way, it's kind of what I do, too. I mean, we try to create different characters and voices, and I'm writing them down to express different points of view that I'm having. And so she's able to actually do this and express it, you know, through this act. And so I, I sort of locked in and I thought this would be so fascinating to learn more about how she's learning the skill and where she does it. Because, you know, we're in Indianapolis. So she told us that she goes to this convention in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, uh, where there's 200 plus other ventriloquists, mostly from kind of small rural towns around the country. And they they just love this and they, they do it. And so Lindsay and I decided we had to capture some of this on film and do a documentary. And we went out there with a little crew and uh, met and really fell in love with a cast of about seven uh, ventriloquists who uh, we thought we would be able to shoot them all at this convention, which is several days long and, you know, just be kind of contained. But I realized that the family support system and seeing them kind of in their hometowns and following them in their careers was really what the story would be about. And I wanted to go back to Corsicana, Texas and Mansfield, Ohio, and all these little towns around the country and capture them and, you know, see like, what is it like to try to perform and make a living as a ventriloquist in Mansfield, Ohio? And that was this uh, woman uh, named Kim, who was a former Miss Ohio runner up. And her talent, of course, was ventriloquism. And now several years later, she had turned it into a career and she was still performing and we followed these people throughout a year. And then one of the people that we followed uh, was a guy who was mowing lawns and painting houses in Corsicana, Texas. And he was 42 at the time. And he told me he was going to become the greatest ventriloquist of all time. And he was going to get on stage soon. And, and people are going to discover his, his talent on a you know a much larger scale. And that's wonderful. Can't wait to see. But then he actually performed for me. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy really has something special. And lo and behold, he gets on America's Got Talent. This is fairly early in AGT history. And he's a little bit mocked at the beginning, like, oh, what about Trilocus is coming on? And he wins everybody over immediately with his performance where he sings with the puppets and winds up winning America's Got Talent. And over the course of the doc, because I'm following him this whole time, you know, then goes on to, to win a $100 million contract at the Las Vegas Mirage. And so this little film about following people, you know, and their passions in, in these small towns suddenly went to a whole different level. And uh, we had a blast. We kind of captured lightning in a bottle and that every one of the performers went through kind of a life-changing experience over the course of 
of that year. And for me, it turned out not just to be a one-year film, but took a couple, but it was well worth it. Had you done projects like that before? You had already worked a decent amount, or was this a brand new type of undertaking for you? No, I, I had been worried. This is post-West Wing, post-Studio 60. What had happened, this is actually the last writer strike. I didn't want to write, but I wanted to keep busy and do something. And I had already started this project, and I just kind of threw myself into it completely. And Lindsay and I were looking for a project that we could do together. We were looking for something that, you know, we could do independently uh, without without studio support. And so we raised the money to do it and put it together and, and really, you know, had a lot of fun. And I think for us personally, it was a good kind of training for parenting to, uh, <laughs> to, to you know, co-raise this uh, this project together, especially when it was about, you know, something so personal like her her family. But you guys were still in the dating phase during that? We had just gotten married. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And a lot of people were like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, she produced and I directed. And yeah, in fact, we the edit bay was in what then became our son's, you know, room once he was born. And uh, actually, with the, premiere, the night it premiered, at the Palm Springs Film Festival, uh, Lindsay was nine and a half months pregnant. So. Wow. That's wow. awesome. Is that a good type of newlywed project, you think? Would you recommend it uh, for other <laughs> other newlyweds? Uh, if you find something that you guys want to do together, yeah. I mean, we got to travel all over the country. I got to go on a, a cruise with, you know, some of the participants and we definitely did learn a lot about how to how we were going to make decisions together um, of creative business and you know build a life so yeah i do recommend it that's I, pretty cool i love that reminder to do things that are also a fun challenge that it sounds like you didn't know what it was going to be when you started it and you having this sort of annual goal to do something that is outside of your main realm turned into actually one of your most exciting, it sounds like, personal yeah. at least, work journeys. They're great stories. I meet incredible people. That one, I got to travel around the country to small towns and places I would never go. You know, not all of them are successful in sort of a commercial sense. I don't even know if Dumbstruck is in some ways. We, get, we did get a theatrical release, which is kind of, you know, unheard of or really uh, amazing for a, a documentary. But lots of other things. I wrote a novel that you know, didn't get published, but also was an amazing experience. And I got a book agent out of it. And, and I think it helped me with a lot of my prose uh, in my script writing. You know, I directed some commercials and short films and things. And again, not all of them are successful, but every one of them I'm learning. And I feel like it's all strengthening my core desire to be a better filmmaker and artist. You sound so fearless with your just like going for all these different mediums, really. Do you have any advice for aspiring creators of any sort? They don't have to be wanting to do exactly what you're wanting to do. I think that now is such a phenomenal time to be a creator. It's actually, you hear a lot about the creator economy. But while it is a real struggle in some of the more traditional avenues, uh, if you want to create videos on TikTok, if you want to create on YouTube, there's no barrier except your own work and desire and the tools that are available now, particularly even AI. I mean, one of the things I'm kind of excited about in the AI world is uh, I am not a great artist, but I've been able to use 
some of the programs like Runway and Stable Diffusion um, and Mid Journey to actually start to storyboard and to put together decks for ideas that I have for TV series um, because it's text to image. And they're, you know, they're still, we're in the beginning phase of this, but they're, they're getting, they're advancing at an incredible rate. So you're not worried, you're not worried about AI or you are a little bit? I know there's this, so I'm worried just a little political here. <laughs> From a writer standpoint, are you, are you, you know? I believe that we absolutely have to solve the issue of intellectual property in order for this to work properly. And that's not easy, but I think it is doable. And I think that there is real opportunity so long as everyone doesn't try a land grab and you know rip off the work of copyrighted writers and rip off the the work of people who have you know spent their entire careers to put something together and then somebody else can basically train and try to you know replicate it and it's the exact same issue for actors and for directors it's now you know as simple as i could go onto a program and copy almost anyone's voice that uh, I would want to, and or even create a deep fake, uh, or I think they'll they'll be called digital twins as well, uh, depending on your point of view on this. But if I do it, Margot Robbie or a famous actor, I think that's a copyright infringement. And you know, people are kind of getting around it with saying, well, it's you know, it's a satire. But once we get these rules established, then I really think it's going to be an opportunity because. Look, there are times when you're on set and if I could say to an actor, there's either a dangerous stunt or I just need you to come in to say one line, but they've, they've just worked a really long day and it's four in the morning and it will, it'll really kind of screw up production if we have to hold and turn around or something. Um, but if I can say, hey, can we use your digital twin and you know we can, and then we can massage it later. I think a lot of actors are going to say that's a that's a, a real net positive, but as long as they're compensated for it and as long as it's not being used without their permission, and so yeah, that's the big yeah they have to sign off on it. That's the big piece. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like it's across the board for writers, for any artists, and doctors too, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I we're in the rev we're in a white collar revolution, right? Yeah. This isn't just uh, for the artists, for writers, and for actors. This is almost any field in which, you know, what traditionally took time for someone to think through a problem or to craft a document, whether that's a lawyer or an accountant, these are all things that are probably, you know, looking at some, you know, radiological imagery, right? There's an AI that can do it. Now, I would also love for that to be a collaboration so that somebody else, I know some humanizer on it too. Um, and I'm, I am fairly optimistic that's the way it's going to go and that this can be a tool. You know, I can imagine some of the arguments, you know, early on with calculators going, this is cheating and, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's going to put all the people out of work who can do this, the math in their head. But I'm, I'm glad there are calculators and I'm glad that, you know, things have advanced so that I can, I can, you know, also participate in that. I think net net, we've had a lot more opportunity because yeah. of it, but there's displacement. So you have to be able to bring people along. You know how to write in cursive, Ali? 
Yes, I did take oh. cursive in third grade, but I know oh, that yeah. that's phased out. I was going to say, really, it's more that it's moving quicker than it has before. It's not just that, you know, a calculator, thank, I'm going to say right now, thank God for calculators. <laughs> it's really that I think this is just the fastest technology has been. So it's it's that we're not as fast to come up with a solution for that displacement is what's stressful. I was going to yeah. ask also if... If you either of you has seen the Joan is awful episode of Black Mirror, because it's really just this whole stress for everyone. It's really funny. It brings some light to it, honestly. Tell, tell me about it. So it's Alexis from Schitt's Creek. Uh, I don't want to tell you too much, but essentially it's people agreeing to AI using whatever it is, their voice or their personal information for entertainment. And it's in a pretty hidden terms and conditions that we all sign and click really quickly. So I would say, check it out. I don't want to give, give it away because that episode's so good, but it, at first you're really angry and there's definitely some really funny scenes in it because right when you have nothing to lose, like your whole life is an entertainment piece for the world. You kind of, she really loses her mind in it, but also it, it gets a little bit deeper and what's okay and who agrees to what and do they know how far that's going when they agree to it of course nobody yeah. reads those terms and conditions when they sign up for any software ever so it's, it was also a little scary i was like what did i sign when i did my apple id or whatever so it, it was a really cheeky way to have this topic come up i, uh, I really enjoyed it what, what's the name of the episode joan is awful Joan is awful. It's about a woman named Joan and how awful she is. That's all I'll right. tell you. That was this season, right? Yeah, it was a recent one. And I I don't really love Black Mirror as much anymore, but I knew I was like, this is the episode for me. And it was. I stopped there. So <laughs> just check it out. I also would love to hear any advice you have for people in their 20s in general, whether they're creator or not, but just starting sure. their career or life. And I, sure. I want to add to that question. Did, did you... Did you actually learn, did you take classes to learn to do what you're doing or you kind of just figured it out? That's part two of, of Ali's question. Okay, a couple of things. First, I also wanna mention there's an amazing South Park episode about terms and conditions that when you click on that is hysterical that they did several years ago. So definitely worth watching that too. That show to me is still incredibly relevant and every time I catch an episode, I'm like, these guys are brilliant. To answer both those questions, what, there are kind of three ways into filmmaking and the more traditional television. And the first is, you know, and this is the way that I sort of grew up on, but that is like you start as an apprenticeship, either as an intern, then uh, you get a job as a writer's PA, a writer's assistant. And then after you've been on a show for a little while, you get an episode and then you get on staff of a show and there's a real apprenticeship and showrunner path that has been built into the whole sort of ecosystem of television writing. And it's part of the reason I love television as opposed to feature film where, except for sort of a certain high mark of, of writers, a lot of times you're a bit of a commodity in, in that. And really the power structure is in directing and in pro producing directing and, for, and actors. And television, 
Beca actually, because of that system in the in the 40s and 50s, when television came around, the writers built into the contract that they get producer credit. And because of that evolution, there sort of is a system where you work your way up from staff writer to executive producer, showrunner. And I've been really lucky, and, and I think a lot of uh, writers and showrunners take this very seriously of training the people who are on our staff and including them in the process from, you know, just not just the script writing, but through all elements of producing so that you're involved in casting, location, scouting, post-production, everything. So that by the time you've been doing this a few years and you pitch and get to write your own show, you are ready to take on the manual showrunner and, and run all aspects of that show. And that system has been in place for a really long time. It's significantly harder to do right now. And that's one of the reasons we're all on strike is because there's mini rooms and short orders. And there are a lot of shows, the writing is all done before you're even in production. So some of the writers never even get a chance to, you know, uh, produce an episode, sometimes not even be able to write a script. They're just in for, to pitch some ideas. So that's what I would say was one of the original ways of, of getting in. And that still exists in their, there are groups and job postings and boards, and and I would recommend that. The second one, which is a little more of how I got into the business, is have a skill set that is in demand for on a TV show. And that can be, in my case, it was since I had lived abroad for a couple of years, I had I'd written some war games for NATO and done speech writing. That was something that they were looking for on the West Wing. And I could help bring some, even though it was somewhat minimal, at least I had some experience from DC and, and politics that I could help uh, bring to the show. And lawyers can often get their first job on a law show. Doctors can get a job on on a doctor show more easily. So um, how did you? So how did you find the West? Did they find you, or you found them? How did how did that work for you? A little of both. I was somewhat disillusioned at that point by what was going on. This was two thousand two, um, with the Iraq War sort of around the corner. And I wrote an episode, a spec episode of The West Wing, because that was my fantasy of what government would and could look like. And uh, that wound its way to the show. I had written some other stuff before that got a little bit of attention and I had, you know, some credit, but not not a ton. And after I think with my background and that spec script, I got read by the, the show and then they invited me to have a meeting and a couple more meetings and then I wound up getting an offer. So it takes a little while, but patience and determination and a little bit of luck got me there. My brother was dating somebody who was an assistant in an agency and, you know, just friend of a friend of a friend. And that's also, it's become a little bit of my barometer if I've written something that's any good, or at least back then, because I wrote a lot of stuff that wasn't good and people were like, hey, good job. You know, and that's kind of all you hear. But when somebody says, hey, can I send this to a friend of mine or can I help you in some way? That's when I feel like, oh, it's it, it's resonating with whoever I just gave it to. So that advice also sounded a little bit like finding your niche. Yeah. You had, you had a specific skill set that fit really well. Yeah, it doesn't so. have to be a profession like doctor, lawyer, speechwriter, whatever. It could also be you have some very specific experience growing up in a trailer park in the Midwest, and there's mm -hmm. a show that has captures that 
you know, atmosphere. And, you know, you can just go on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, try to connect with the creators of that show or producers of that show and let them know I, this show really speaks to me because I had a similar life experience or, you know, I worked in a call center and there's a show about call center, whatever it is, it doesn't have to just be a skill set. It can be a lived experience because I, I think that most, most people are looking to create authenticity in their shows. And sometimes we have it and sometimes we're creating things that we know almost nothing about, which can be fun, but you want to surround yourself with people who, who can add some authenticity. I think you're pointing out a good lesson too, is that you have to have a certain level of chutzpah, you know, or balls or lack of a better, you know, to, to be willing to kind of take the initiative and put yourself out there to, to hunt stuff down. Well, you know, as a writer, and that also brings me, I guess, to the third way uh, of, of getting in. And, you know, I think a lot of writers are more introverted. That's why we write and are more behind the camera than in front of the camera. But uh, if you write something that really, really resonates, that is special, you don't have to go the assistant route. You don't have to go on somebody else's show with your expertise. You can create your own show. And whether that's a play that you've written or a, a movie that, that you've written or even a TV pilot now, if that thing is really special, it will, it will rise and it takes a while and it might take several versions, but that is a way absolutely that certain people are discovered is you, you've just, you've written something that really shows your point of view and, and your tone and, uh, and people take notice. And so you don't have to be a writer who's running around networking and constantly, you know, trying to push your stuff out there. At some point, those really good things are found. And whether, you know, it's Harry Potter that I think it got turned down 36 times or something by pretty much every publisher. But eventually someone said, you know what, this is incredible. Uh, I'm going to take a shot. That's my whole childhood right there. So I'm so yeah. glad. Do you have a project that you're most proud of, whether it saw the light of day or not? <laughs> um, I it's hard to say. I'm I'm really proud of of a lot of things. Sometimes it's little things, like it's even a scene and a uh, script that I've written. I have one project in particular that uh, is a movie that I'm I recently wrote that I'm really, really proud of and I'm excited about and I'm gonna to get to direct. And so that's uh, something that I'm, is more recent, but I, I, I'm very excited to share with people. And, and I just, I feel like I kind of hit something that, that was meaningful to me. Um, and I got to write it during the pandemic right after my, my mom passed away. And so it's just, uh, it was a, a really emotional time and I felt like all that kind of came out in the script, so. Could you I give can't. us a little teaser about it, or? Sure. Yeah, it's about. Are you gonna uh, start crying? If if you are, I, I wish I could give you a hug. No, no, it, it's actually not even about that. That was more like just fuel and energy uh, while I was writing it, because I, I wrote a lot of it. I, my, my mom uh, was diagnosed with a geoblastoma, and I would go and sit near her, and I would just sit with my laptop and, and write for the lab because it went very fast. It was like three months from the time that she got diagnosed to uh, passing. And it was during COVID, which made it all the more uh, tricky. But it's about the founding of Bitcoin and a character named Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, no one knows who this person is. 
and it's you know disappeared in 2011 and created this financial instrument that's kind of revolutionized currency and the blockchain and no one can figure out who or what he is and where he disappeared to uh over 10 years ago now and why there's a open bank account uh in his name with about 40 billion dollars sitting in it to this day and so it's a real, it's a fun mystery. And I got to kind of, I was inspired by some of my favorite films, whether it was Usual Suspects and The Big Short and The Social Network, uh, and even a little bit of Disaster Artist. It all kind of came together. And I, I'm, I'm proud of it and uh, excited that when, when I can, I'm going to get to make it. So you're an Aaron Sorkin disciple, eh? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that. I feel very, very lucky and blessed that I got to work with him as one of my first jobs and work really closely and then got to run the writer's room on Studio 60. And there's, he's a talent like no other I've ever encountered. And and I really kind of treasure getting to spend that time with him and learning from him as an early influence. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. I can't wait to see when that comes out and and the full story there it sounds exactly like my new hook for my next movie or show i also saw your ted talk about your son speaking of family and it was so beautiful and it brought me to tears because i'm emotional of course so how is he doing oh my gosh you know i was just talking to somebody about that today uh i everything that i said then i feel uh, almost you know more adamant about today all of the people who you know we didn't listen to in terms of experts who said he'll never get to a certain level uh he'll never be independent we need to sort of coddle him and put him into special schooling and and you know keep our expectations really low i think that for too many people that becomes a life of dependency learn dependency that they can achieve much more and i think part of being a parent is allowing you know your both yourself and them to fail more um and let them learn and uh you know it's obviously been harder with him but we told him from a very young age hey you've got this challenge guess what other people have challenges too everybody's got something you know some people may be missing a limb some people don't have your brains and everyone of his skills that seem like deficits, I think there's a flip side uh, that becomes a superpower. And um, like the fact that, you know, it is so hard for him to see when he does see something, he memorizes it. And he also, you know, has this incredible gift for a musical ear because that part, you know, your brain compensates and gives you these other skills. So he's He's actually, he's in an advanced math class. He's getting straight A's. He's he's really doing well. And it's been fun to watch him continue to blossom over time. Thanks for asking. He actually plays golf too, which is, and he can beat me. And again, low bar, but uh, still quite amazing. <laughs> I love that. That's such an amazing update. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then I, unless Dr. Cohn has a, a follow-up there, we usually, we're going to stop taking your time. We've gone over. We usually wrap with what you're consuming right now media-wise. So if you're reading something, watching, 
whatever it is, podcasting, listening. We want to hear what you're up to if you have time. Sure. Uh, gosh, uh, the bear yes. is phenomenal. Just love that show. Uh, binge that. What we do in the shadows. I really love been watching the new season of that. A few documentaries I've seen recently. I really liked uh, still Michael J. Fox documentary. It's great. I'm actually going to watch the the doc tonight. I think about the the fake football team, high school football team. That's that's really it's on HBO. Just came out. Fake football team. Yeah. I'm gonna have uh, to look this up. Uh, I'm already intrigued about that. And let's see what else. I don't know. I've been catching up on on a lot of you know a lot of shows that uh, <laughs> Oppenheimer, obviously. Yeah. And, or, and how often do you write, do you make it a point to try to write something every day? Is that your yeah, process I too? A, yes, I think it's a muscle. And I think that uh, one thing I've been trying to take this time um, while we're on this, you know, pause, I've been reading a lot more and I've been actually studying filmmaking a lot more. Like I've gotten to catch up. There's some amazing masterclasses. Spike Lee does a masterclass. Shonda Rhimes does a masterclass. Some of the people who I just I've been in awe of uh, as filmmakers, and so you can just watch those on the on masterclass. And there's a lot of behind the scenes docs that are available, James Cameron, and all all kinds of really amazing people. So I've really been taking some time to try to to watch those and then incorporate them in the things that I'm doing, and just been doing more journaling it's kind of funny it took me about a month <laughs> to start journaling again which because i had stopped for a very long time i felt like i was saying i was writing enough uh in in my shows but it took me about a month before i finally landed on what uh app i was going to journal on you know, I, I spent a long time mm. procrastinating trying to pick which one um to use because there's a lot of really good ones out there and some are incorporating ai and there's personal assistants out there that are kind of fun and they'll help you and prompt you and talk back basically uh, you know as a as an assistant um or as as a almost a therapist they're kind of interesting so i've been playing around a lot in that world what app yeah. do you recommend uh, well, there's like Pi, which is the personal assistant that Reed Hoffman, LinkedIn fame created. There's uh, Day One is the one of the ones that I've been using. There's been, you know, several that I've been playing around with, but those are the, the two that I've been looking at. Bard, it doesn't quite work like like a journaling instrument, but I often, I for research, I find Bard really good. Wow, Allie, do you journal, Allie? I do. I I scribble as messy as I can so no one can read it, but I do it. I can write. You Pretty know, happy. you guys, I learned how to write, not in cursive in my journal, but I did do that. I don't type it. And I do it in on paper in my journal at night. Nice. Really? Every night or how often? I was doing every night and then I also kind of fell off and it took me a while. I had the same lag of knowing I wanted to do it and then sort of it gets harder the more you have to say. So when things are hard, it sounds really bad to do. Now I'm back to every few days, I'd say. The goal is every night. What are you watching? What am I watching? Also, I just looked up that show quickly. It's called BS High for anyone who wants to watch it. Bishop Sycamore was the name of the team. I am, I recently started listening to Smartless. I know I'm behind on that. It's hilarious. So everyone listen, if you haven't, I 
also am obsessed with the bear and I recently saw Oppenheimer and Barbie and I just jumped on the succession train. So I'm a bit behind. Oh, <laughs> here I am. Succession is just beyond brilliant, beyond brilliant. And it's right. But I just, it's one of those shows that, I mean, the, the acting is fantastic. The filmmaking is fantastic, but the, the writing just blows my mind. Um, right. I, Marvel at uh, Jesse Armstrong and, and that team they're just they're the, it's it's really a marvel to watch yeah it's rare that a show has or anything that I'm watching even as I was a media studies major but has me pause to say how is this made or but that show does that to me a lot I'm I'm always thinking wow this is unreal that someone was able to entangle this and write it this way so it's it's really interesting it's I'm hooked now for sure and what about you Dr. Cohen what are you watching reading listening to I, I'm pretty behind on every day. I'm, I'm reading a little bit of a book called The Tennis Partner, the, uh, 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 written by a guy named Abraham Vergesi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. He's a doctor who finds this medical student that he's playing tennis with. And I think it's even going to be turned into a movie, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Do you guys know, have you heard about it? No, no. I haven't. Yeah. I've, I recently read, uh, I, I, I want to read that book, but I recently read The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, and I highly recommend that. I think that's a really terrific book. And along those lines, it, it, he, Rick Rubin's not in it, but if you've seen Dave uh, yeah. X, um, I think there's a character inspired by him. And um, I, I think that Dave captures the creative process incredibly well. And just, I, I really think that's a special show as well. That's a bizarre show. I am yes. reading. I forgot reading. I'm reading right now, which is, <laughs> which is big. I'm reading my first dark fantasy novel. It's called Ninth oh. House. I haven't what read a it? fantasy novel since I, I mean, obviously I was Twilight Hunger Games. Those are all my, you uh -huh. know. But it's called Ninth House. I'm only a few chapters in, but I'm already hooked. It seems to be about a secret society that's using, they're at Yale, and they're using some sort of dark magic to predict the stock market. So we'll see how that turns out. It's going to take me a long time to finish it, so don't hold your breath. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time tonight. We'll let you get to your documentary and we appreciate you so much. Mark, oh, thank you so thank much. You. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. As a reminder, Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 